Well, welcome, River Tree family, for those at the Cove campus, those who are at downtown campus, or those who are tuning online. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, to be able to speak before you all. As uh, Jay said, I started here in July, but I started attending River Tree in January just as I was working in a school and me and my wife were planning on getting plugged into a community. And if you would have asked me, I was speaking on a Sunday uh, at the end of the year, I would have thought you're crazy. So here I am. And we'll see how it goes. I was also in a, a, car, a car drive home from Oklahoma yesterday with a two and a five-year-old. So have a little leniency with me as well. So that being said, for the a downtown campus, uh, I, I'm Justin with an I. I never thought I'd have to preface that as well, J-U-S-T-I-N. But so grateful to be able to speak here. So grateful to be able to, to work with a great team, but also just be a part of a, a great church body. You guys are awesome. So I hope you all have enjoyed our time studying the Gospel of John. We took a, a, a break for Advent. And so this week we're going to be jumping back into Matthew. So just to preface two things before we jump into to the, the study again. We, it's been a little bit since we've been in Matthew. I honestly struggled so much with how much to recap. Because, I mean, again, it's been since November since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. So let me just say two things. The first is this. The trajectory of the Gospel of Matthew right now is headed towards Jerusalem. Meaning the Gospel writer Matthew has Jerusalem in mind because Jesus has the cross in mind. The story is drawing us towards Jerusalem. It's drawing us to the cross, Jesus crucified and the resurrection. But then the second thing is this. We feel a little tension in chapters really 18 through 20. And it revolves around two questions. What must I do to have eternal life? We see someone ask this question in chapter 19. But then also, who is Jesus? Is he actually able to save? So we wonder, is it about my works? Do I have to say something to find eternal life? Do I have to do a certain something to have eternal life? In chapter 19, you have the rich young ruler who essentially asked this question after he accomplished this list of to-dos. He had this list of, I've kept all these commands until birth. What else am I missing? And Jesus tells him, let go of your riches. Hold them open-handedly towards God and, and follow me wholeheartedly. So what we see with him is he made it about works when the reality of it is wholehearted worship was needed. And then the question of who is Jesus? So many people at this point are asking this question, who is Jesus? And there's one group, the religious leaders, who should have known who the Messiah was, who should have looked at Old Testament prophecies and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Yet, they are looking at him and trying to silence him, saying, whatever he says, whatever he does is not worth it. He can't save us. So they're telling others, hey, let's not listen to this guy because he messes up my way of life. He messes up the way we are doing things. He messes up our power, prestige. And so them and a lot of other people are wondering, can Jesus actually save me? Is he more than just a miracle worker? Is he more than just a teacher? So that being said, I want to point out, right as we're going to this passage, that this passage is really highlighting who Jesus is, that he is divine, that he's the son of God. And as we study this passage, you'll see that. So we're in Matthew chapter 20 the very end of it, and let me read it for us. 
Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So here we are on our way to Jerusalem. And for them, they're on their way to Jerusalem because at this time, all Jews are really headed to Jerusalem because of Passover. So there are the masses of people traveling that way. To give you a little context of the geographical area too, Jericho is a last stop for really everyone east of Jerusalem, really kind of northeast, all coming down through Jericho. So a lot of people are traveling just in general. A lot of people are just living in Jericho. So there's just tons and tons of people. So traveling is much different. I know it goes without saying, but traveling is much different for them than it is today. So for us, we bond with that car in front of us in the interstate that's been going the same speed as us for two hours. And when the Kia finally turns off, it, you're heartbroken. You're like, we had this bond, I'll see you later. I just, I, just, I just experienced that. You just get in that groove. For them, traveling was a different shared experience. It, it was, you see the customs of the people around you. You're traveling very slowly. Uh, you get to see people's families or whatever's going on. Again, it's a shared experience. So imagine with me, everyone's traveling to Jerusalem or Jews are traveling to Jerusalem at this time. Maybe some other travelers as well. So they're all funneled into this city. Jesus has his disciples around him. And then he has really hundreds of people probably wanting to know, hey, we've heard about this guy. We've heard about his teaching. We've heard about his miracles. So not only that, they're traveling. Hundreds of people are wanting to hear Jesus. And then, and then there's just people traveling in general. And so, for example, you see the blind men. They're just in Jericho begging. This crowd goes through. They hear that Jesus is around. And they're like, please, please. You know, like, we want to be heard. So there's just tons and tons of people around this area. Many people able to witness what's about to happen. And you'll see where it leads to in chapter 21. We'll, we'll talk about that later. So a side note as well, before we really jump into the meat of this passage, is that the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Mark both have this story as well. It's slightly different. They only talk about one person instead of two. So in Matthew, you see there's two by men. In Luke, you only see one. And then in Mark, it gives them a name. It's Bartimaeus. And it's all in Jericho. It's all having to deal with this blind, these blind person or blind people being healed. And the reason why I bring that up is, first of all, I love that Mark includes the name Bartimaeus because he's adding a level of validity to the story. So, for example, he's saying, hey, you want to hear what happened with these blind men? Bartimaeus near Jericho, he used to beg there. I, there's tons of people you could probably go ask, and they'll tell you what happened. They'll tell you about this miraculous event. You want to ask people who maybe knew him? Again, Bartimaeus from Jericho. So adding a level of validity to the story. 
But then I'll also bring this up because anytime you hear a story repeated over and over again, it's emphatic. You're trying to make a point. Anybody who has kids, you know you tell the same rules over and over again, the same stories over and over again, because you want them to listen, you want them to hear it. So for this as well, the fact that we see this three times, the fact that we see it over and over again, it's meant to draw us in. Something is significant here that is meant to capture our attention. So that being said, there's two outsiders trying to get Jesus' attention. Now they're outsiders because they were blind. The culture really saw them as unable to contribute to society. They pushed them wayward. They, they shushed them in crowds. We, we heard about how the crowds didn't really care for children at this time. I'm sorry, kids in the room, but they really wanted you to be quiet. They wanted to let the adults talk, something like that. Same with blind. They were, they were outsiders as well, hence why you see in them being rebuked. Yet Jesus gladly listens and has compassion for outsiders. And so I just want to make that a little note for us to hear is, to note the compassion and the patience and the willingness to listen of Jesus. So what I really wanna draw attention to though is the, the proclamation of, of these blind men. They say Jesus is the son of David. Now this just isn't some ordinary title. It's rich with meaning. It's not just something you say in jest. It's something that you say with purpose. It referred to the king who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. The son of David would be the king, the healer, and the leader of Israel. The one who would rule on the throne of David forever. The one that Israel was looking for to make all things right. The long-awaited king. The king of kings. So, they're making a huge, huge proclamation. Even though they cannot physically see Jesus in their weakness, they, they really do see his identity. They see him as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And unfortunately, while they recognize who Jesus is, there's many in the crowd who recognize him as something less. So for example, there's a lot of people who saw Jesus as the great miracle worker, and he did perform miracles. Or the profound teacher who spoke in a way like none other had heard, and he was a great teacher. But many people didn't see him as a savior. They didn't see him as the king of kings, the one that they should listen to, the one they should follow and run to, and abandon the pleasures and riches of this world for. They saw him solely as the preacher and the miracle worker. Yet these two called him Lord of Lords, mighty king. And because these two saw Jesus as who he truly is, they pleaded for mercy. They saw their position before God, and they recognized they needed mercy. They asked for mercy concerning their physical and spiritual need. Now this didn't come from a place where they felt like they deserved it. It did come from a place of expectancy, but not because they felt like they deserved it. This came from a place where they knew the compassion and love of God. They knew that when the Messiah came, that he would heal the blind, that he would mend a broken world. So they asked for mercy with expectancy, but not deserving it. 
There's a, a famous parable in Luke 18 contrasting two ways of, of how really you hold yourself up before God. You may have heard it, but let me read it for us. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Jesus told them this parable who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this parable is concerning two sinners who came to pray. One saw the need for mercy. One thought he was good. One was in desperate need for mercy. One was telling God, you should be happy that I'm on your team. This parable causes you to question your own disposition. Do you see the desperate need for the Lord's mercy? Or do you see the need to prove yourself, to prove your worth before God? And for like the Pharisee in this, we see it's in vain. We see it's just, you know, empty. But do you feel the need that you need to prove yourself for God to have favor, yeah, for you to have favor, God's favor? At times we might want to think we're like the tax collector, but then we leave, live in a way that says, God, I just don't need you. We live in a way that says, I can do this without you. We live in a way that says, thank you, Jesus, for that initial mercy you showed me, but I'm just going to live like you don't exist anymore and just do my own thing, but you should be happy that I'm on your team, right? I tithe, I go to church. We, we do these things, but then we abandon God completely throughout our day-to-day -day lives. And that's... That's not, that's not what we need. That's not the way we were created to live. Ultimately, we are all unrighteous before God, and we need Jesus' mercy, and we need him to stand in our offense. And we should have the attitude of these blind men asking and depending on the mercy of Jesus. Not just once and one time, but for justification before a holy God, but also in our walk with, with God as well. I love Jesus' response in verse 34. It's one of compassion. It's one of healing. And it's almost like he just does it nonchalantly as well. So when he, when he asks them what's, what do they want, they ask for healing, and he's just in pity, he reaches out and they're healed. He doesn't have to ask for power. He doesn't have to do anything or say anything that, like I summon the power of God for you to be healed. He just does it. He just stretched out his hand and healed their eyes. And by doing this, the fact that he is divine is implied. It's seen. It's proclaimed to this large crowd traveling. Healing the blind was unheard of. One commentator puts it this way. Daniel Doriani writes this. In the Old Testament, there is no record that a prophet or a servant of God ever heals the blind. But the healing of the blind is Jesus' most common miracle. Why? Because the Bible says God alone gives sight to the blind. 
When God restores all things, when his servant comes, then the eyes of the blind will see. Do you see that? No prophet, no servant of God has ever done this. And this is Jesus's most common miracle. What's the response of the blind men? In Matthew, we see it says they followed him. But something more is implied. If you were to flip on over to Luke, Luke 18, 43 says, and immediately he recovered his sight and they followed him, glorifying God. And then it adds this caveat, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Why? Because this was unheard of. The blind didn't just receive their sight. There's a story in the Gospel of John where you see this man from birth healed, a man, a man from birth, blind from birth, healed, and the religious leaders are just confused. The whole chapter is devoted to them just trying to figure out what happened, and then they're frustrated it happened on the Sabbath, but they're just confused at how it could happen. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's profound. And our response to seeing the power of Jesus, just like their response should be, is one of worship, one of devotion, one of wholeheartedly following after God. So what does this mean for me? What does this passage mean for me today? Well, first of all, this passage points to the fact that Jesus is God. And that alone should change the trajectory of anybody's life. That Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. He's more than just a profound teacher. That he is Savior. So it would do us well to listen to what he said, what he taught. It would do us well to listen to what he accomplished and respond wholeheartedly. But then the passage also causes us to question our own disposition before God. How do we hold ourselves up before God? Do we plead for mercy? Do we live like he doesn't exist? See, the, the need for the blind beggars was obvious. But a lot of times people don't recognize that the crowd was just needy as well. They needed healing. They were spiritually blind. Some of this crowd just saw him as the miracle. Some of this crowd just saw him as maybe crazy and speaking just kind of profoundly nonsense. Or maybe some just thought he was a great teacher, but they were missing the fact that he was savior and that our life needed to follow after him. They were blind to what was in front of them. Let us not be a people who walk in spiritual blindness because we are looking in all the wrong places for hope. So this is profound thing, this, this kind of like, just unreal thing that happens in my house and maybe it happens in your house too. It's something my wife calls dad eyes. For example, my wife will ask me to go find her water bottle. I'm gonna do the helpful thing. I'm gonna go find the water bottle, right? So I go on my search, I go on my quest, and I look under the couch, look at the bedside table. Maybe it's in the bathroom on the sink. Maybe it's out in the backyard, on the back porch, in her car. She drove today. I look everywhere for this water bottle, everywhere. I give up. I, I just can't do it. So I go back to my wife and say, I'm so sorry. I looked. I've, I mean, I've been gone for 20 minutes and I can't find it. And she's like, I'll just take care of it. 
So she walks into the kitchen and it's on the sink. I mean, it's on the, it's on the kitchen counter in the open and I'm, I'm dumbfounded. How did that happen? So I think two things happen. First, which is obviously true. When I leave the room, she just puts it on the counter just to mess with me, right? <laughs> I always hope that's the case, but it just happens way too much. Or maybe she's that good, I don't know. The second thing, which is probably what happened for real, is I look in everywhere, if I lost my water bottle, I think, if I lost my water bottle, it would have to be hiding under the couch or something like that. So I look in the most extreme places, and because I think it would be a great story if I found the water bottle in the attic, right? You know, like, how did that happen? It would be a good story for a sermon later. I look in all the wrong places. I overlook the obvious. And my question for us in this room is, do we look in the wrong places for hope and salvation? Do we look in our works? Are we trying to prove our worth before God? Do we look in our words? Do we feel like we have to say something? Do we look in our community and think, I have to find validation, I have to find likes, I have to find some type of verbal validation? Do you think it's found in the the pleasures and the riches of this world? See, let us not overlook Jesus right in front of us. Let us not overlook what Jesus accomplished so that we can walk with God daily. Knowing Jesus is the only way to find true sustaining hope, true sustaining joy, to find salvation. We see in scripture that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We see that he is the light of the world, and when we follow after this light, we then can show the light to others as well. We're beneficiaries of that. We boldly confess our need for his mercy. Let us be like the the blind men who, who say, Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you for showing compassion. Thank you that you're slow to anger and abundant and faithful love. Is that our demeanor? And when that is our posture of worship, the only response, when that is our, our kind of thought of who Jesus, knowing he's the way, our only response is one of worship. It's one of listening to his words. It's one of following him. It's one of showing compassion to others. If you were in this crowd, you wouldn't be the ones trying to shush the people who need the help. You'd be the one trying to bring them in so that they could find healing. Not just healing for their eyes, but healing for their soul. So do you know Jesus? Do you boldly confess your your need for his mercy? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for displaying your power in this world. Thank you so much that we see the power of Jesus in this passage. You are able to save. You proved it. We know you are able. Thank you for giving us this word so that we can know you more and more. May your spirit guide us in understanding you more and more. And may we have a posture of repentance and humility. For those who know you, may our actions be, and our lifestyle be one of worship. May we come to you daily. May we display the same compassion and love you've shown us. May we show that same love to the others around us. 
Help us to be a light in this world, pointing to the one true light. For those who might be walking in a manner of spiritual blindness, I pray that you lead them to look to you for salvation. I pray that they don't overlook the need for running to your mercy. I pray that they don't overlook Jesus to find, you know, validation in works or accomplishments. It's only through Jesus that we were able to walk, that we are able to walk the way we were created. So I pray that they respond. As we move into the new year, thank you so much for the blessings we received in this this year, but also I pray for this upcoming year. May we walk in a a way that shines your light. May the lost be saved. May they turn to you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.